Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a bi-weekly show about the green economy, the buzz, the politics, the business, the technology, the current affairs, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, has COVID been good for the environment? A new report from the Brain Trust at the OECD has an answer and a prediction. Then, 10 green technologies that could change the world. Tyler Hamilton from Mars Discovery District takes us on a high-speed tour. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a major new report. And Mike Moffat caps it all off with his list of five things happening in the green economy this week. That's the agenda. Let's get started. You've heard the anecdotes, you've seen the photos, and you've maybe even watched the video footage of nature healing during COVID-19. Whether it's sea life returning to the canals of Venice, swarms of flamingos in Mumbai, herds of deer roaming the Japanese city of Nara, or the skies clearing over urban centers that have been buried under air pollution for decades. The slowdown in global economic activity due to COVID has had some upsides for the environment. But how big have those environmental upsides been? And are we about to bounce back into a high-pollution economy? Well, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a.k.a. the OECD, based out of Paris, has just published a report asking and answering that very question. And to speak to that report, I'm welcoming its author, Rob Delink. Rob is a senior economist with the OECD. I'm reaching him at his home office in Paris. Rob, thanks for joining me on the show today. Great to be here. Now, Rob, you've looked beyond the anecdotes of so-called nature healing during COVID and, and looked at the data. What does the data tell us about the immediate effect of COVID-19 on the global environment? So that, that's a very good question. And um, there's no simple answer to it. Um, there's only one part that we could actually cover, and that is that I did in my analysis, and that is look at how COVID has affected our economic activities, and then how these economic activities again affected environmental pressures. So I haven't looked at whether biodiversity is improving or not, but rather been looking at what happens to energy use, what happens to agricultural production, and all those things, and then link that to what happens to the environment. So 2020 has been a big shock to the global economy. I think it was a unique, at least since World War II, in terms of how big the effect was on the economy. And global GDP growth went from a 4% growth in 2019 to a 4% drop in a single year, and that's huge. So that, of course, also meant that environmental pressures went down. Uh, global greenhouse gas emissions dropped by about 7%. Air pollutants went down by 2% to 7%, depending on which air pollutant we're talking about. Materials use, some of them went really down, especially the ones related to construction activities, went down by something like 10%. And uh, global land use change was actually the least affected with only 1% to 2% reduction. Mm. Um, and Rob, were these changes uniform around the globe or are there kind of regional hotspots that you saw where the, this economic activity translated into, you know, drops in pollution or, or drops in material use, as you say? So on the one hand, it was, it is really a global crisis and all countries are affected and all regions see a drop in economic activity and also a drop in most of these environmental pressures. 
But there are big differences. For example, um, China recovered fairly quickly. And by the end of 2020, Chinese uh, emissions were, levels were already growing again. Whereas in India, the, uh, the effects were much larger. It's also a big issue is uh, that some countries are recovering much more quickly than others. For example, the US and China are, seem to recover fairly quickly, both in terms of economy, but that also means in terms of, uh, of emissions and other pollution. Mm. Whereas um, India is on a much slower recovery path, as we can see now. Rob, you mentioned that India, uh, in particular, of course, with the wave of COVID that they're having, their economy might have some longer lasting short-term effects from COVID. What are the kind of environmental pressures that you've seen drop there? In India, it's an interesting case because it's, we've seen a, a fairly substantial drop in, um, in air pollution. And that is a good thing because air pollution is one of the major problems in India. And Indian uh, air quality levels are relatively low compared to a lot of other countries, and especially, of course, in the big cities. Hmm. And so for that, in that sense, the slowdown in economic activity has brought an improvement in air quality, although we haven't seen any robust evidence that this effect on air quality will stay with us. But our projections show that because of the economic slowdown, India is on a pathway to somewhat cleaner air for the longer term as well. And that's a good pivot, Rob, because your report, of course, suggests that there could be long-term benefits for the environment. What are the dynamics? I mean, how, how does that happen? What are the dynamics that could lead to that outcome? So the dynamics that happen is that, um, that, that the pandemic will affect our economies in a lasting way. And it's not so much in terms of economic growth, which we project that, they, that it will recover, but for the level of economic activity, we basically have one or two years of really lower economic activity. But the other effect that we found is that there is a small change in the structure of the economy, and especially in OECD countries, we see that the kind of these, these economies are uh, specializing a little bit more in the cleaner sectors of the economy. So it's a bit of a structural move away from heavy manufacturing towards cleaner types of, uh, of economic activities. So that might lead us to a longer lasting effects improvements and a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, for example, also in the US, even though economic activity in total doesn't decline anymore after or it comes back to the pre-COVID levels fairly quickly, we do see a lasting level, lower level of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and what's the magnitude of this, of this potential drop uh, over the long term? So we I focus here on, on the global effect. Um, so there's big differences between regions, but on the globally, we would see a, between a 1% and 3% reduction in the levels of environmental pressure. So 3%, roughly 3% lower greenhouse gas emissions globally, mm. 2 to 3% lower air pollutant emissions. And then the ones that are more related to, to agriculture, uh, we see smaller drops in the long run. So 1% to 2% perhaps. Interesting. So, uh, so as much as 3% drop in, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions over the long term coming out of COVID because of some of these, these structural changes and, and dynamics that you've identified. Rob, many countries have made these commitments to a green recovery, mainly by way of economic stimulus targeted at, at things like renewable energy, transportation, and, and other things that uh, will lower greenhouse gas emissions. Are, those, are the effects of those commitments and those kinds of investments 
those will presumably uh, improve your projections even further or, or do your projections incorporate uh, some of those announcements that have been made? So we've incorporated only the announcements that were made basically in the first phase of the pandemic. So the stimulus packages that the governments implemented in 2020. Okay. And there, I'm not optimistic at all because what we saw there is the governments were really looking at keeping companies afloat. And mm. a lot of these companies that they kept afloat were transport companies, uh, all the airlines, etc., And those were very polluting industries. So these initial stimulus packages were not green at all. So, so in other words, this uh, 3% uh, long-term drop, uh, permanent drop in greenhouse gas emissions that you project, that, that could just be a, a starting point. And if countries follow through with, with more ambitious green recovery plans, that number could inflate. Absolutely. Hmm. Rob, really fascinating insights that, uh, that you've put together in this report. Thanks for sharing them with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. That was Rob Delink, Senior Economist at the OECD. For a link to this new OECD report on the long-term environmental implications of COVID-19, we've got a link to it on this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, those of you who have listened to previous episodes of this podcast know that I get a little excited about emerging green technologies. And there's a good reason for us to get excited about them. It's that if you look at the pathways that have been modeled for meeting the world's climate goals, they depend in part on new technologies that aren't commercial today. The technologies we already have, they only get us part of the way there. For example, in last month's breakthrough report, the International Energy Agency noted that almost one half of the greenhouse gas reductions needed to hit the global goal of net zero emissions by 2050 come from technologies that right now are not available on the market. And Canada's own scenarios for reaching 2050 show that as much as two-thirds of our greenhouse gas reductions need to come from emerging wildcard technologies. Well, last week, Mars Discovery District, the startup engine based out of Toronto, provided a glimpse of what these wildcard technologies look like. It put out a list of 10 Canadian green technologies that could change the world. To give us a rundown of these exciting technologies, I'm speaking with Tyler Hamilton. Tyler is Director of Clean Tech at Mars. Prior to that, he was a longtime green technology journalist for the Toronto Star and then for Corporate Nights Magazine. Tyler, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Eric. Tyler, I'm eager to to hear about the technologies that made the cut. But before we just dive in, uh, tell me a little bit about how you chose the the companies and the technologies that made the list and the ones that didn't. Yeah, well, let me give you a bit of context about the program. We call it the Mission for Mars program. We're Mars. Uh, so we thought it'd be a cool play on words if we called it uh, Mission for Mars. And this is the first iteration of the program. So for the first one, we, we picked companies that are focusing on technologies for reducing GHG emissions. So we, we launched it back February 10th. Uh, we had a goal of, of recruiting from across the country. The goal was also to recruit companies at later stages of development. So these are companies that have commercial product or, or are pre-commercial, but will be coming to market soon. And we put them through a two-stage screening. So we took those different kind of streams of analysis and we ended up whittling it down to a list of 10 companies, which we are calling our climate champions. 
let's jump in. What, what are the green technologies that made the list? The first company that I'll talk about is called Extract Energy. They've developed what's called a heat engine. So this is a device that's capable of, of taking heat out of really low temperature sources of heat. So not the stuff that's really high temperature, like deep underground geothermal, you know, past the point of boiling. Mm-hmm. They can take heat that's coming out of technically the, the exhaust of your car or uh, lots of heat that's emitted uh, through uh, effluence uh, from industry or from from the stacks that you'll see, you know, at power plants, and they can they can convert that energy, that thermal energy, into clean electricity at a remarkably low cost. And the real innovation here is the ability to uh, tap into that heat that's below 100, 100 degrees Celsius, because no technologies in the marketplace today can do that, and 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 turn that that energy into electricity economically. Wow. So number one, capturing low temperature heat and turning it into clean electricity. Uh, what's the second on the list? So the second one, I think you've dis- discussed in previous podcasts, but it's uh, carbon engineering, capturing CO2 directly from the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also in addition to that, uh, cl- creating clean hydrogen from renewable resources and then combining that hydrogen with the CO2 to create clean fuels. Um, they estimate that just building a single plant uh, at industrial scale has the potential to capture the same amount of CO2 per year as 40 million trees. So that's a cool one. Yeah. Um, another one we have is called Opus One Solutions. Uh, they, des- they describe themselves as, as having an operating system for the modern grid, allowing utilities to plug in new sources of renewable energy, wind turbines, solar, uh, energy storage, et cetera, in a way that allows them to interact kind of in optimal ways um, using this software will really help utilities to get more and more renewables on the grid to the point where, you know, one day we'll be able to get to 100% and completely um, remove ourselves from having to use fossil fuels. And so that's, that's kind of the, uh, the architecture behind the so-called smart grid. Exactly. Um, and, the, and the final one in the energy category is called storm fisher biogas. So we all know that we produce a lot of uh, food waste in our homes and, you know, from restaurants and grocery stores, and that has to end up somewhere. The worst place for it to end up is landfills. And what this company does is it takes all that organic waste uh, to centralized uh, anaerobic digester plants, which basically use microbes to break down these materials and release uh, biogas, which is then captured and can be uh, burned to generate clean electricity, or it could be upgraded to something called renewable natural gas, which can run to, run in buses and other vehicles to displace the use of fossil fuel, gasoline, and diesel. Very neat. Okay, so that's that's the energy category. Um, where do you want to take us to next? Well, let's talk about uh, our real estate climate champions next. Um, we have a company called Brainbox AI. They're based in Montreal. And they use deep learning or, you know, and cloud-based computing uh, and AI algorithms to uh, connect with a building's HVAC system. So this is the system that controls the air conditioning and heating in buildings. And once it connects, it basically learns how that system operates. The AI learns. And within two to three months, it's able to adjust the operation of that system so that it automatically can reduce the energy use and by association emissions that result from that energy use by up to 40% in a a building. Another company called Stash Energy has something called air source heat pumps. Like people might think of air source heat pumps as your typical central air conditioner, but with the ability to also provide heat. 
And what they do is they extract the heat that is in the air around us. And when it's not too cold outside, they work really, really well. They're super efficient and they, and many homes can use them to heat themselves without having to rely on natural gas or other sources of fossil fuels. But one of the problems is that when it gets really cold outside, these heat pumps don't work really well. But what Stash Energy has done is uh, they've integrated this material that can store heat within the heat pump and you can then charge it up during hours when electricity is cheapest, like overnight, mm -hmm. and, then, and then tap into that heat whenever temperatures plummet. And that allows you to operate the heat pump at maximum efficiency throughout the course of a 24-hour uh, day. Yeah. So, so fine tuning the air source heat pump for, for the Canadian context, essentially. Okay. Um, number seven uh, or, or the third in the real estate category. <laughs> yeah. So that, that one is called peak power. Um, peak power is another company that's using AI or artificial intelligence in their software to help building owners and project developers, as well as industries and utilities operate uh, different energy resources more efficiently. Um, like Opus One does for the larger electricity grid, uh, Peak Power does something similar, but within the building. So if you want solar or energy storage or even electric cars to plug into your building, uh, it manages this whole process and in doing so really optimizes how you're using energy. Okay, Tyler, um, over to the, to the transportation category. Yeah, so we're, we're narrowing down to the final three. Uh, in transportation, the first I'll mention is called Ifenco. They're based in Montreal. They make um, hybrid and fully electric, heavy-duty vocational trucks. So think buses, think concrete mixing trucks, waste collection trucks, delivery trucks, et cetera. Hmm. We know with Tesla and other major car makers, there's, there's a lot of options on the market today for passenger vehicles uh, that are electric, but not a lot for the heavy-duty vehicles, which consume diesel primarily. So Efenko has developed a technology that uses a combination of batteries and ultra capacitors to, to really allow us to get that segment of the transportation market off of fossil fuels and to become electrified. Hantonium is, uh, is our ninth company. They're based in Toronto. They basically Uberize municipal transit. We've all been to smaller towns or even, even larger cities where in overnight hours, buses are forced to drive dedicated routes. And yeah. often you'll see them driving by and they're completely empty. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a waste. You know, why is a bus consuming fuel and going around this fixed route just because it, it's told that it has to? Right. What, what Pantonium does is it, you could have that bus potentially just parked in a parking lot waiting for a demand to emerge and it will be responsive and pick people up and drop them off based on their needs. Okay, neat. And and what's the the, the last uh, of your on your uh, top ten list? The company is called Flash Forest. They use drone technology uh, as well as uh, automation and ecological science to plant trees. Basically, they're a reforestation uh, afforestation company. Hmm. the The idea here is that conventional tree planting is very labor intensive, and it also introduces a lot of liability, uh, especially with Lyme disease moving further up north. Right. So, what you can do instead with Flash Forest is send a couple of people in a pickup truck and a couple of drones, and they can plant ten times as many trees in a day as as the traditional method at a, at a tenth of the cost. 
Tyler, that was a lightning fast tour of these uh, 10 exciting emerging green technologies that, uh, that Mars is going to be supporting through its, uh, its mission from Mars Climate Impact Program. Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Take care. That was Tyler Hamilton, Director of Clean Tech at Mars Discovery District. To navigate the Mars list of 10 climate champions on your own, we've got a link to it from this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now it's time for the 60-second report. It's something we do every show. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, I'm welcoming Vasundara Saravadi. Vasu is a PhD student at the University of Waterloo and co-author of a new report called Catalyzing the Growth of the Green Bond Market, Insights into Drivers and Barriers Globally and in Canada. Vasu, over to you. So our working paper finds that green bonds are a successful driver for mainstreaming the concept of sustainable finance in Canada and around the world. They do so by helping the financial sector label its investments as green, pushing for better environmental reporting and encouraging awareness on climate impacts. Barriers for this market have included the potential for greenwashing and the lack of standardization in measuring the environmental impact of financial investments. In Canada, these barriers are also likely to get amplified due to the nature of the economy and its exposure to climate risks. Our report recommends that Canada show global leadership in this market by aligning its resource-based sector with internationally supported green taxonomies, as well as explore more opportunities that help climate adaptation and nature-based solutions when issuing green bonds, and improving market access to newcomers by issuing more green bonds within Canada. Thank you, Vasu. For a link to that new report, visit this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, there's a lot happening in the green economy every week, too much for me to cover all on my own. And so, at the end of every episode, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat, to recap everything I missed. Mike is Senior Director here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and here he is with five other things happening in the green economy this week. Thanks, Eric. Here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, three developments rocked the oil industry last week. First, a court in the Netherlands obligated Royal Dutch Shell to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 45%. Second, ExxonMobil shareholders elected two activist board members expected to press the company on its climate impact. And third, Chevron shareholders voted that the company should reduce scope three greenhouse gas emissions. This signals an era of increasing climate accountability for the oil industry. Number two, Canada's five biggest pension funds increased their holdings in Alberta's oil sands, reversing a recent trend in undermining the fund's climate-friendly promises. Their investment in Canada's top four oil sands producers have more than doubled in the last year. Number three, Suncor, Canada's second largest oil producer, plans to cut its emissions by more than one-third by 2030, the most aggressive target of any oil sands producer, even as it lifts production to a new high. The company says it will achieve this by using cleaner electricity and through carbon capture and storage. 
Number four, the World Meteorological Organization says the Earth could temporarily push past the temperature limit identified in the Paris Climate Agreement in the next five years, and that it is very likely we will set yet another hottest year record in the next four years. Number five, the oil-producing country of Oman announced plans to build the world's largest green hydrogen plant, which when fully complete in 2038, will produce 1.8 million tons of hydrogen. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thanks, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. In two weeks, we'll be back with another one. In the meantime, I want to remind you that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like to talk to people who are doing interesting, evidence-based work. I also want to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. I'm Eric Campbell. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out June 23rd.